we're going to start a new preaching series today. It's called What's Next with an exclamation point, not what's next with a question mark. Because our sovereign God has loved and shown us mercy in his word to give us a window into some of the concrete details of what he is planning to do in the future. What a God that would know the future well enough that he would predict it in his word and we will see it come to pass. That's the God you know, that's the God that knows you, and that's the God that we serve. And so this first sermon in a series of sermons called What's Next is on the church age. This morning we begin with the church age because that's the time in which we're living. Did you know that when the Bible was first inspired by God the Holy Spirit that 60% at least of God's word was prophetic? God made predictive prophecies through his scriptural writers. And 60% when a time of writing was future-oriented. So God wants us to know that we can know what he will tell us about the future, that he's in control of it. It will help us to know what he's showing us in his word that he's planning to do. That brings a truth of like 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You see, God grants us the prophetic word of God, the word of God that gets us a window into what God will do, because that will teach us what we need to know. That will rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. That will correct us where we need correction. And that will train us for righteousness now, given what's going to happen then, in the future. In God's plan, revealed in his word, we are in a time that is called the church age. The time that the church age began on the day of Pentecost is recorded in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And years and centuries have passed since that time, and we are near the end of the church age, I believe, and I'll tell you why in a moment. As the church age ends with the rapture return of Christ for the church, that kicks off seven years of tribulation on earth, unprecedented trouble on earth as sin multiplies and multiplies and God pours out judgment against sin on those seven years. The church won't be in the seven years. We'll already have been raptured. After the seven years of tribulation, that period of time ends with the second coming return of Christ. When Christ comes not just to earth's atmosphere as he did seven years previous in the rapture return, but in the second coming, he comes and actually comes down to planet Earth, Jerusalem to be particular, sits on David's literal throne in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and rules the earth in righteousness. thousand years, Satan is bound, confined in a pit, and Jesus Christ, King Jesus, rules earth for 1,000 literal years. I'm looking forward to that. Then Satan will be released for a time, banished to the lake of fire forever, There'll be a great white throne judgment of all the unbelievers of all ages of human history stand before Christ individually, sentenced to a literal hell with degrees of punishment based on the deeds, the sins that are recorded in Jesus Christ's books on everyone who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. And then after that great white throne judgment, this current earth is incinerated, this current heaven is incinerated, and God makes over a new heaven and a new earth that lasts forever, forever. That's the overall panorama. And as I said, we are in the church age. This sermon is about being in the church age. And I don't know the date of the rapture return of Christ. It's not in the scriptures. I'm not to set a date. I'm not setting a date. But I can look at the seasons. 
And I have a sense in my heart as a Bible student that we're getting close to the rapture return of Jesus. Sometimes you go to the mall in the U.S., and there are these kiosks, and they have maps of the stores in the mall, and, you know, they put a sticker. They say, you are here. So Penny's is that way, and Macy's is that way, whatever. You are here. I believe the sticker on God's timeline of panorama for human history puts the dot near the end of the church age and says, you are here. Why do I say that? I know the seasons. As a Bible student, I have a sense of the seasons. Do you realize there are blueprints in Jerusalem and all of the building materials that the Old Testament prescribes for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt are all in hand? And they're ready to rebuild the Jewish temple at the drop of a hat. Are you aware that Israel is increasingly being threatened this radical Islamic terrorism wants to obliterate the nation of Israel, drive them into the Mediterranean Sea, and exterminate every Jew? That's their stated purpose. Are you aware that anti-Semitism, hatred of Jewish people, is spreading and on the uprise like it was before Nazi Germany in Europe and every other quarter? You've seen what's happened in Florida in the last month? Jewish temples being defaced by swastikas? Have you noticed that the number of member nations in the European Union is gradually and steadily adjusting down, down, down to be closer to the predicted number of 10 nations in that economic union at the time of the tribulation? Have you noticed that there's a push, a concentrated, subtle, and not-so-subtle push for one-world religion? The current pope is pushing for that hard. Have you noticed the current pushes that are pushing for a one-world economy? Have you seen the proliferation of false teachers and false gospels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We're in a season, I believe, that we are near the end of the church age. I don't know when Christ is rapturing the church. I don't have a date. But I can read the signs that I believe it's soon. So I think we're near the, probably near the end of the church age, near the time of the rapture of the church. This sermon is on the topic of the church age, this period of time which, which we currently live. Four things I want us to see from the scriptures this morning about the church age. First, the church age is time limited. Second, the church age is church dominated. Third, the church age is Gentile focused. And fourth, the church age is sin restrained. Let's take them one at a time. Let's take the first point. It is time limited. The church age is time limited. As I said, as I gave you a bit of a walkthrough, the church age began on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Before the action of the book of Acts, there was no such thing as the church. There was no concept of the church in the Old Testament. The church wasn't born until Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down as a dove and rested upon the believers in Jesus who were in Jerusalem. And they spoke known languages that were previously unknown to each of them. I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2 so you can hear it straight from God's book. This is the birth of the church, which is the beginning of the church age. We're in Acts 2. I'm reading the first verses of chapter 2. Listen. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise of a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in their own language. It wasn't heavenly language, which was unintelligible speech. It wasn't gibberish. Biblical tongues were known languages that were unknown to the people who started to speak them. It's like if I could be zapped and be able to speak fluent Chinese. Verse 7, And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? I'll tell you what it means that the Spirit of God had come and the church was born. That's what it meant. And the spread of the gospel message that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead could go fast across the planet with validating signs of tongues, known languages being spoken fluently by persons who previously didn't know the languages. The birth of the church. So the birth of the church is the day of Pentecost event in Acts chapter 2. What's the end of the church age? When does the church age end? Well, I'll tell you exactly when it ends. It ends with the rapture of the church as recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A catching away. Rapture is from the Latin verb rapturio. Rapturio means to be caught up. And so one day, Jesus Christ is going to come to Earth's atmosphere, and in the twinkling of an eye, he's going to gather out those bodies of born-again believers who have passed and are in cemeteries, and he's going to take them first, and then we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together with the Lord to meet them in the air, and thus we shall always be the Lord, therefore, with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. One day, your car is going to be where you parked it. And your desk is going to be empty where you work. Your bank account's going to go dormant. If you know Jesus as Savior. So let's read about the rapture return of Christ that ends the church age, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice, the shout of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The rapture return of Christ's promise isn't to scare anybody. <laughs> it's to comfort the believers. And so we're in the church age. It's time limited. It had a birth, the day of Pentecost, when the church was born in Acts 2. It will have a terminus point. The church age will end when the church is raptured, caught up, taken away from earth to be with Christ. So the 
church age, the time in which we live, is, is uh, time limited. You say, Pastor, well, I think the church is going to go through the tribulation. Well, may I ask you this question? If you believe that the church of Jesus Christ is not going to be raptured before the seven years of tribulation and we'll have to go through it, why would you tell me then that the chapters that most focus on the details of the tribulation in the Bible, Revelation chapters 4 through 18, there is not one mention of the church in those chapters, not one. If you think the church is going to have to go through the tribulation, why does God not mention church once in the main chapters of the New Testament talking about the tribulation. I conclude they're not, we're not mentioned in those chapters because we're not in the tribulation. We're raptured out of here first. That's the comfort of it. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in the first place, the church age is time-limited. In the second place, the church age is church-dominated. This age in which we live is church-dominated. What do I mean by that? Well, let me contrast. In the Old Testament, before the cross, before the church age, in the Old Testament, it was Israel-dominated. In the Old Testament, God's covenants were made with Jews and not with Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the Jews were to be God's primary blessing, vehicle of blessing for the whole wide world. In the Old Testament, God predicted that his Messiah would be Jewish in his humanity. In the Old Testament, any blessings that got from God to Gentiles got to Gentiles via Jews. For example, Ruth via Naomi and Boaz, or Nineveh via Jonah, or Nebuchadnezzar via Daniel, or Rahab via the two Jewish spies, or Egypt and the famine-stricken world of Egypt's day via Joseph. In the Old Testament, because it was Israel-dominated, if any non-Jew got any blessing from God, it came through the Jewish people because the Old Testament is Israel-dominated. But how different is the New Testament? The New Testament is not Israel-dominated. The New Testament is church-dominated. In the New Testament, God's covenant is in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, which is shed both for Jews and for Gentiles. And in the New Testament, the church who is commanded to be the main vehicle of blessing in the world is giving marching orders, and they are too, to share the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has died for sins and risen from the dead. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, this is the marching orders for us as a church in this church age. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation." That's how blessing is to come to the world now in the church age, is that we obey that command and we share the gospel as far and as wide and as quickly as we can. The second way that the church is to be the primary vehicle of blessing to the whole wide world after the gospel is disciple making. Jesus makes it very clear what the church is to be doing. And it's not bake sales and car washes and the like. What we are to do as the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples, fully committed followers of Jesus Christ, as far and as wide as we can. And so disciple-making is the great 
commission. Jesus' last words before ascending to his Father's right hand, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's one command in the Great Commission. It's make disciples. There are three participles how we are to make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And so the church in the church age is to be the primary vehicle of blessing for the whole world. We share the gospel, we invite people to trust Christ to be Savior, and then we help them to become fully committed followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. The church age is dominated by the church. Another way of pointing out that the church age is church-dominated and not Israel-dominated, as was the Old Testament, is to notice that in this current church age, a bride is being beautified. The church of Jesus Christ is compared to a bride. And in this age in which we live in grace, God is beautifying his bride. He's chipping off of each one of us who know Christ as Savior everything that doesn't look like Jesus. That's how he's beautifying his bride. In review, what have we seen so far about the church age? We've seen the church age is time limited. Second, we've seen the church age is church dominated. Now our third point about the church age, it is Gentile focused. The church age is Gentile focused. The Old Testament was Israel focused. This age in which we live from the day of Pentecost till the ends at the rapture of the church, this is Gentile-focused time in human history. Gentile-focused. In the New Testament, it's the believing Jews in Jesus who are welcomed into the church rather than believing Gentiles being welcomed into Judaism. If the church age would be Israel dominated and focused, then a convert to Christ who was Gentile would plug back into the Judaistic system. But we don't. No, the converted Jew through Jesus Christ in the church age, since the church age is Gentile focused, is placed alongside believing Gentiles into the church. The time we live in is Gentile focused. In Ephesians chapter 2, We hear this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Listen. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, Gentiles, who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, who made both groups into one, that is, the church, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Before the church was born, and Israel was the only spiritual show on earth, there was a Gentile court in the Jewish temple. And Gentiles could only come into the outer court, the Gentile court, but could go no further toward the manifest presence of God in the Jewish temple. This verse is saying that because the church age in which we live is Gentile-focused, 
that we now have access to God that we never had before. And the wall that separated Gentiles from the a nearness to God that once was in the Jewish temple has been turned down to rubble. And now the church of Jesus Christ is made up of believing in Jesus' Jews and believing in Jesus' Gentiles. But the time in which we live is Gentile-focused because in the church age, secondly, we live after the cross and after the resurrection. Judaism is completed and it is fulfilled. I know precious Jewish people who have turned to Yeshua Messiah in saving faith and have been born again just like I have been as a Gentile believer in Jesus, and they call themselves completed Jews. I like that. That's the way it is. Jesus came not to abolish the law of Moses, but he came to fulfill it. But we are warned sternly as a church in the New Testament not to revert back to the Old Testament law, not to revert back to the Jewish protocols of worship. You say, where's that warning? Well, let me share a couple places. In Galatians, a strong polemic argument against reversion to law-keeping for the church of Jesus Christ. It says in Galatians 1, 11 to 16, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, that's God's election of Saul for salvation before he was even born. But he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, that's Jesus on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Or take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a way of saying the Old Testament. The law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus kept the law that we can't keep. He is righteous before his Father, and when we trust him alone to be our Savior, we are graced with the righteousness of Christ being imputed to our accounts. We are robed in Christ's righteousness as believers. Don't revert to Old Testament system of law-keeping to try to make yourself right with God. Galatians again, this time 2 verse 16. These are warnings to the church of Jesus Christ not to revert to the law. 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Do you know why by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified? Because nobody can keep 100% of the law 100% of the time. And if you think you have, you're deluded. Romans 3, 21 to 28. Warnings to the church not to revert to law. 
Romans 3.21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, another reference to the Old Testament, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. By his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that means a satisfactory sin payment, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Warnings, Galatians uh, 3, 24, warnings, church, in the church age, don't revert to Judaism. Don't put the laws of Judaism on each other. Galatians 3, 24, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. A pedagogue or a tutor in the New Testament time was a, a nanny, a live-in nanny who took the children, the minor age children, to school every day, walked them by the hand of the schoolhouse, and then after school got them and walked them home and helped them with their homework and pointed them to their lessons. This is saying the law was like a nanny, a live-in nanny that took you to the, your need of Christ. When I had hair, I would look in the mirror and I would say, man, that, that hair is out of place. My mirror never corrected my bad hair day. I had to get a brush or a comb, and then I could correct my bad hair day, but I never really corrected it, so that's why I shave my head now. <laughs> the law is a great mirror, but it can do nothing to make us righteous. It just points out we need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Do you know him as Savior? I don't, not do you know about him. Do you know him personally as Savior? You can. There are other warnings. Acts 15, 6 to 10 is in your outline of verse 14. But the point is that in this church age, in this church age, it's Gentile focused. So we aren't to put on the yoke of the law of the Old Testament on the church. Jesus fulfilled the law. And so don't miss this. The church age is the age in which we now live that is a unique time in all the panorama of God's history where the church dominates God's plan. Prior to the church age, prior to the cross, in the Old Testament, God's focus was squarely on the Jews and the nation of Israel. And after the church age ends with the rapture of the church and the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, God's focus will once again be squarely on the Jews alive on earth during the tribulation, the nation of Israel. So this, parentheses, when God's focus was on Israel before the church and then after the tribulation when God's focus in the tribulation will focus squarely again on the Jews but then will resume later, we have a great challenge. We need to understand that this is a unique period of time. It's a period of time that Jesus predicted would be called the times of the Gentiles. In Luke 21, 
Jesus was talking about the future. And in Luke 21 and verse 24, this is what Jesus said about the church age in which you now live. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We live in the times of the Gentiles. We live in the church age. Romans 11 25 has a slightly different name for the church age, but still talks about the Gentile focus of the age when Romans 11:25 calls it the fullness of the Gentiles. We live in a time that one day, maybe today, I don't know, that the last elect Gentile for salvation who's alive on the planet trusts Christ to be Savior in the church age, and bang, the rapture occurs. Romans eleven, twenty-five. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, something that was always in the mind and heart of God, but wasn't previously revealed in previous scriptures. For I do not want you, be brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Right now in this church age is a partial spiritual hardening on Jewish eyes. Partial. There are some Jewish persons, precious Jewish persons, who are turning to Yeshua Messiah in the church age and are being born again. But there's a partial spiritual hardening in this church age with respect to Jewish persons. Partial, temporary hardening. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the last elect Gentile for salvation trusts Jesus Christ alone for salvation in this church age, the church age ends with the rapture of the church. Truly, the church age is Gentile-focused. Our fourth and our last point about the church age this morning is that it is sin-restrained. The time period in which we live is sin-restrained. You say, really, Pastor Rob? Do you listen to the news? This is sin-restrained? I mean, terrorism, abortion, war, human trafficking, greed, envy, rage, lies, laziness, marital infidelity, abuse of all sorts, crimes of all sorts, exploitation, perversion, and in many cases, corrupt government and churches idolatry, blasphemous pride, no respect for God or human life, so-called mercy killings, denial of God's existence, rejection of God as creator, overall hatred of God and God's people. Sin is being restrained, Pastor Rob? Yes. You should see what it's going to be like when it's not restrained. Read Revelation chapters 4 through 18. Second Thessalonians 2 is a very interesting passage I want to share with you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about a time when the current restraint on sin in the church age will stop and sin will be unrestrained and all hell will break loose on earth in the tribulation with Antichrist at the helm of it all. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 7 we read, this. Now, 
We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not, may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to if the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The precious Jesus followers in ancient Thessalonica had come to the erroneous conclusion that the rapture return of Jesus Christ had happened and somehow they were left. They didn't get in on it. Paul wrote them to say that is not the case. The rapture had not yet occurred when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. And these centuries later, the rapture of the church has still not yet occurred. But as I shared earlier in the sermon, I believe it could happen really soon. But he was settling down these Thessalonican Christians who thought somehow they'd been overlooked. And he says, verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by the spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness, that's a name for Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, that's another Bible name for Antichrist. Who, that is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above, above every so-called God, little g, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Let me just back up. Remember I said that all the blueprints are existence in Jerusalem, all the rabbis have all the building materials necessary to rebuild the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. It's all ready to go, yes. That temple will be rebuilt, and before the seven years of, of tribulation begin, Antichrist will appear on the scene as a, as a peacemaker, that he'll be pro-Israel. He'll be offering Israel what no other person before him has delivered, which is safety from oppression and military opposition. And they will sign a peace treaty with Antichrist in good faith, thinking he will deliver the peace they desperately want and need. Scriptures tell us that three and a half years into that treaty, Antichrist will show his true colors, demonic colors, and he will erect a statue of himself in the reconstructed Jewish temple, and he will say, I am God, worship me. It's called the abomination of desolation in the prophet Daniel. When the world, and the Jews in particular, see that he claims to be God and demands to be worshipped, they will know they're in trouble, but it'll be too late. And the last three and a half years of the tribulation are called the Great Tribulation because although the first half of the tribulation will be nasty, the second half of the tribulation will be just unbearable. The judgments of God, you can read about it in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. So some of these believers in ancient Thessalonica were mistaken, sorry, were, were wrong. They thought that they'd missed the rapture and they're being written here to say, don't you haven't missed. And he says that, Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's Antichrist. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him. Oh, a what restrains Antichrist and evil in the church age? A what? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Yes, we agree. Only he who now restrains. So we move from a what that restrains evil now to a he that restrains evil. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by uh, the appearance of his coming. Second coming, event of Christ Jesus, by the word of his mouth that spoke the universe into existence, will defeat all his enemies at the second coming. This is saying that the restraint of evil in the church age is by a what, but more specifically by a he, a masculine pronoun reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who lives inside every born-again Christian. If you know Christ as Savior, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you go to work tomorrow morning and sit at your desk, the Holy Spirit who lives within you permanently is restraining evil in your office. Doubt that? Ever seen a dirty joke completely stop when you walk to the water cooler? When you go to school, young person, as a Christian, this week, the Spirit of God who lives inside of you, you take the Spirit of God into that classroom and playground, and you restrain evil. The Spirit of God restrains evil through you, your presence. Doubt that? Ever seen a child being bullied on the playground, and a Christian child steps in and says, Stop that! And the kid stops. Evil is being restrained by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who resides in the born-again, redeemed, blood-bought child of God. Is that you? You don't house the Holy Spirit until you're saved, until you're converted, until you've run to Christ for refuge and forgiveness of sin by faith. We live in an age, thank God, that sin restrained. But one day, this age will end in the twinkling of an eye. I asked the doctor what that meant. A medical doctor says five sixteenths of a second. And we're out of here. Every true Christian on planet Earth is out of here. And the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwelt each one of us stops and all hell breaks loose as a judgment of God. So church... The worst thing we could do at this point in the sermon is say, okay, I understand what the church age is. I'm a little smarter. Pray, preacher, the lunch is burning. The right thing to do at this point in the sermon is for us to search our hearts with God's help and say, who in the world needs to be warned? Who in my world needs to be told that they're perishing without Jesus Christ? And one day I won't be here anymore. So let me, let me close this message on the church age to say this. Now, currently in the church age, sin is restrained. Soon, after the rapture of the church and the seven years of tribulation, sin will be punished. And after the seven years of the tribulation and the beginning of Christ's literal thousand-year kingdom we call the millennium, sin will be extremely rare because Jesus will rule earth with an iron scepter. After the thousand-year kingdom of Christ, in hell, sin will continue. You know, people who go to hell without Jesus Christ as Savior will continue to sin in hell? They will. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 22. But the sin during that time in hell forever and ever and ever will be contained in hell. It won't bleed or seep into heaven. And ultimately, after the thousand-year kingdom and in the new heaven and the new earth, sin will be 
50% eliminated. That'll be good. And so, friends, we live in a choice period of time. We live in a unique period of God's panorama of history. We are blessed beyond measure to live in this church age. We have a completed Bible. (laughs) We have the Holy Spirit living in us full time, never to be evicted. We have a new covenant. We know a resurrected Savior. Yes, we live in a unique and a very special time called the church age. We have no need anymore of animal blood sacrifices. We are a bride. A bride being made ready for her groom. We have direct access to God through Christ. We don't need a human priest. We have no necessary human middleman. We live in a choice time. We don't need to look for some prophet or for some priest or for some king because the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. For sure, we live in a wonderful, exciting, unique, specially blessed time called the church age. We have a clear understanding and definition of the gospel, and we can share it in the power of the Holy Spirit and see people saved. We are God's, we the church are God's intended primary vehicle of blessing to get God's priority job of world evangelization and disciple making done and dusted. We are seeing evil restrained to what it will be when it's full blown. Thank God we are blessed to live in the church age. We see born-again Jews right alongside born-again Gentiles in a worldwide, universal church of Jesus Christ that will be raptured. Some of us may not have to physically die. (laughs) We'll be raptured alive. All of the prophecies which need to be fulfilled before the rapture return of Jesus for the church are already now fulfilled. He could come back any time. What a time to live. What a time we, we expect something that no other believer in history before us ever expected. We expect a rapture return of Christ, the Bible tells us. And we also expect something that no other believer after us will expect because they will not have a rapture after the rapture. <laughs> what a time. We live in a time when our Lord Jesus could come back at any time now to take his bride, the church, to live with him forever in heaven. What a time. What a time. We ought to be about the Savior's business. We ought to set our agendas aside to be about his agenda. What a time. Will you stand with me? Church, we live in the church age, a time of great blessing and a great responsibility. Here are some takeaways. We live in the church age, and it is time-limited. Therefore, work. There is no place for a lazy Christian who's just marking time by pulling petals off a daisy chain while people are going to hell. Work for the Savior. We live in a church age that is church-dominated, so join. Are you a member of this church? A formal member of this church? Why not? Join this church. We need you. We need more committed believers who will stand with what this church stands for and want to be involved, not spectators, but ministers. 
We live in a church age that is Gentile-focused. So go and take the gospel to lost and perishing souls other places. Or if you won't go or can't go, send others with your money and your prayers to take the gospel to lost and perishing Gentiles around this world. And the church age is sin-restrained. So resist sin in your own life. Resist sin at your workplace. Resist sin at your school. Resist sin in any church you're a part of, including this one. If there's sin in this church, resist it. Resist sin in this country. Don't roll over and play dead. Resist. Because he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And because Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to every living creature, and he had no plan B. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And he had no contingency plan. In the Old Testament, Israel was the only show in town. In this church age, the church is the only show in town. Let's be about his business. Let's work. Let's join. Let's go or let's send. And let's resist. Oh, God, thank you for the high and holy calling you've placed upon our lives as your children. Lord, may we fall in line with your agenda. May we love you with all that we have. May we serve you with all our might and prayer. May you grow this church and every Bible-believing church through conversion growth. Turn us around, Lord. Make us salt and light. Light that dispels the evil of darkness and salt that inhibits the putrefaction of our society. Help our society to stop stinking because the church is a preservative. Lord, where we have failed you, where I have failed you, where we have failed you as a church, we humbly ask for your forgiveness. We repent of any sin or any living under our own lordship of our lives instead of Jesus Christ's lordship of our lives. We want to be in stride with the Holy Spirit. We want to be new creations in Christ. We want to make a difference. If Christ tarries, we don't want to be on our deathbeds, 80-year-old people, and say, I wish I did that with my life. Help us to live without regrets. Lord, thank you for the church age and for the window you've given us into it through the scriptures. Thank you for showing us you are here. May we respond accordingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.